0: Now, this is Solomon speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And these are the words that he pens. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen, or to draw near to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, or as a result, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake." Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. We began it last week, part 1. We'll conclude it this morning, part 2, is really just the James 1.19 of the Old Testament. And there are two overarching imperatives uh, that we began to look at last week and we'll conclude this morning. Uh, and they are this, very simply, be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. That's verses 1 through 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We should be quick to listen. James tells us that in James 1.19. And then where we'll pick up this morning is to be slow to speak. That's Ecclesiastes 5 verses 4 through 7. So we're to be quick to speak, or I'm sorry, quick to listen rather, and to be slow to speak. So let me take a few moments here this morning by way of review, fly over points uh, one and two from last week to give us a running start into our text for this week. These two points are already filled in on your outline, but perhaps you'll hear something in summary uh, that you missed last week. But we began last week, uh, Solomon was encouraging us to guard our steps, guard our steps. Look back at verse 1 there in your Bible, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, draw near, to draw near, uh, to listen is, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil they're doing evil. Verse 1 has to do with our approach of God. It's how we come before God in worship. It has to do with our demeanor and our preparedness as we come to worship. And what Solomon's doing here is he's warning his readers and that is subsequently us here this morning to be cautious in our behavior as we approach God. We're not to come before God flippantly. We're not to come before God thoughtlessly. We're not to come before God carelessly. We're to come before him cautiously. Worship is one of our primary joys and responsibilities, but all too often we approach God with a casual attitude. But the worshiper that God desires comes before him carefully and with due attention. Here's the takeaway, or here's one of the takeaways if you want to write this down from last week. Obedience to the word of God in private, in the private life, prepares the believer for participation in public worship. What you do in the other 166 and a half hours of the week, by way of preparing your heart, will help you come into your time of worship, to this time of worship, ready, ready. We said here that we need to draw near and listen to God. The idea here is listening for the sake of hearing, but hearing for the sake of obeying we do not want to be that James 122 person, right, who looks at his face in the mirror and then quickly goes away and forgets what he looked like. We want to not only be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word as well. And so we're to guard our steps as we come, but we're to come to listen. Listening to God's word, listening is very important. Matter of fact, I said last week that the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our primary spiritual discipline. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says every word of God proves true and so we should come ready to hear, to listen, not so that we can look at our face in the mirror and quickly go out and forget what we looked like but so that we can apply, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that we would look more like Christ as a result. We said last week the consequences of failing to attentively listen to God's word is, uh, is setting us up for failure. Because it's setting us up to offer him the sacrifice of fools instead of the sacrifice of praise. And so we're to guard our steps. We're to draw near to God and listen. And we're to do that so that, the end of verse 1, we do not offer uh, the, the sacrifice of fools What is a foolish sacrifice? Well, I said last week that the sacrifice of fools is careless observance of religion unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul. It's what you do out of custom. It's what you do out of just living in the the religious rut. And and friends, let me just tell you, we all have a religious rut. I have a religious rut. Uh, And we can get in that rut and we just travel in it. One of the things that God uses to get us outside of our rut, oftentimes, is pain. Pain. Pain is God's megaphone. Pain is what God uses, or trial, or difficult circumstances. God uses those to arrest our attention, to get our listening ear, right? It's like, oh, God, you've got my ear now. I'm listening. I'm listening. We don't want to offer a foolish sacrifice Here's the takeaway from last week. You might want to jot this down. Offerings in the hand without obedient faith in the heart become the sacrifice of fools. Offerings in the hands, that which, which we bring, uh, without a, an obedience uh, of faith in the heart, become the sacrifice of fools. Remember David reminds us in Psalm 51, he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Before anything else, God wants our contrite, humble, worshipful heart. Okay? We said, Guard your steps. Guard your steps. Uh, secondly, last week we said, Guard your words, guard your words. I uh, find verses two and three there in your Bible. Solomon says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, or as a result, or consequentially, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Verses 2 and 3 here have to do with careless prayer. Verse 1 has to do with how we approach to listen. Uh, verses 2 and 3 have to do with careless prayer. Don't be too quick to just tell God what you think he wants to hear, okay? He wants us not to be rash. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty or quick, ready to go to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is God and you are not. There's a way that we should come before him. Here's the takeaway from verses uh, 2 and 3. Careless words are a reflection of the inner life. Careless words uttered are just a reflection or a mirror image of the inner life. I said last week, your, your mouth is the release valve for the contents of your heart. Right? You just think about it. If there were a little valve here, uh, off and on, you think about going to the, uh, to the water fountain or, or to, uh, to the sink and you turn it off and on, that's a valve. Uh, When you turn it on, out comes the contents that's behind the valve. Well, there's a valve here, and that valve holds down the contents of our heart until we open it. We open it, and then we see what's really in our heart. Jesus said this in Luke 6. He said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Out of that valve comes good. But the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil for out of an abundance of the heart, or some translations say out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. People tend to be very rash with their words. We tell lies, we make rude comments, we lash out in anger, we make threats, we speak in unkind ways to and about other people. We make promises that we never keep, and sometimes we even swear against God. You, you want a, a good study of the mouth? We just need to go back to James, right? The tongue, though it's a small member, like the rudder of a ship, possesses great power. Like a little spark that can set a forest ablaze is how evil the tongue is. A world of evil exists right here in our chops. Okay? We so said don't be rash. Don't be quick to speak. And then lastly, uh, we said don't be verbose, don't be wordy. Solomon says, therefore, let your words be few. Let your words be few. John Bunyan once said in prayer, it's better to have heart without words than words without heart. And the reality, I mentioned this last week, is is that our prayers can sometimes be prayerless. Our prayers can sometimes be prayerless. Simply stringing words together does not mean that our words come come from a contrite and worshiping heart. A man when he prays should not give reins to his tongue without being conscious that God is infinitely bigger than we are. We shouldn't approach God carelessly without collecting our thoughts and lifting up our souls as the heavens which are God's throne are exalted above the earth the dwelling place of man so exalted is the heavenly God above earthly man. Okay? So we do not want to be rash and we do not want to be verbose. Guard your words. Guard your words. And Here's where we pick up for this week. Number three, write this down. Guard your commitments. Guard your commitments. Look back at your Bible there, specifically verses 4 through 6. Solomon writes these words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Verses 4 through 6 have to do with our making vows or making commitments before God. What you need to know is that this was a relatively common practice in the Old Testament temple. And so as Solomon's speaking here, he's speaking into the context of the day. This was a common practice in the Old Testament temple. As Solomon actually begins with the assumption, though, that at some point or other, most people will make a vow to God. Look how he begins the text there. He says, when you... He's making an assumption there. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. And it's important to note that God didn't require his people to make vows in order to be accepted by him, but the opportunity certainly was there for them to express their devotion to him as they felt led to do so. Now, having said that, the temptation presented to the worshiper, presented to us here, was to, uh, was to avoid fulfilling the vow once God had answered their prayer, right? So we pray, God, if you will only, then I will, and God wills, and now I am not all that concerned about my part of the bargain, right? So the principle that we see here is, you can write this down, verses four and five, do what you say, do what you say. People make vows all the time, People make vows when they're baptized. People make vows when they become members of a church. Parents make vows when they dedicate their children. Spouses make vows when they commit their lives to each other. I had the privilege of standing in front of a young couple yesterday, marrying them as they exchanged vows before the Lord, first and foremost, and before others. People make commitments to read God's word. People make commitments to maintain purity. Christians, from time to time, though it's a poor understanding of who God is and how prayer works, will even sometimes try to bargain with God when they're in a pinch. Or they'll try to see if they can get a a better deal or the better end of the stick. I mentioned this just a second ago. It might look something like this. God, if you will just fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. God, I'm in a pickle. If you'll just... Get me out of the bind. If you'll, if you'll just provide in this moment, then I'll, I'll serve you with my whole life. We say those types of things. And if we don't say them, we certainly think them, right? In Solomon's day, it might have looked something like this. Lord, if you heal my son, I'll give you 30% of this year's harvest instead of the usual 10. It's a vow. God, if you will do this, then I will Do this. We see an example of a vow in Genesis chapter 28. You can just jot this reference down if you want to check it out later. Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. Uh, Just give me your ear here. Moses writes this, then Jacob, Jacob is the, the, uh, the individual here, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar or an altar of worship shall be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth in return." It's about. We see them all throughout the Old Testament. If you're studying and reading the Old Testament, we see this type of language. Uh, pop up fairly regularly. Uh, You can see how tempting such transactions might be. After all, life is dreadfully uncertain. I mean, Solomon's taken five chapters to this point to help us see that, right? We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, and life is uncertain. Uh, And so making these vows can can seem tempting at times. God, if you will only, then I will, because it provides a sense, at least in our thinking, of, of certainty. Of certainty. The problem is is that oftentimes after whatever the momentary crisis is, once that crisis passes, we oftentimes never give a second thought to honoring our words. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but God remembers these vows and he holds us to them. He holds us to our word. Here's the reality, friends. It's much easier to make a promise than it is to keep one. It's much easier to make a promise than it is to keep and uphold one. When you tell God that you are going to do something, do it. Honor him and do it. Have integrity of heart and thus integrity of words. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Integrity, sincerity is very important to God notice that there's no sin in refraining from speech but it is sin to vow a vow and then fail to fulfill our word again god loves integrity of heart solomon actually in proverbs chapter 20 says this it is a snare for a man to dedicate something rashly we see that word again right it is a snare for a man to dedicate something rashly and then to reflect on that only after making vows. In other words, what this man, what this woman has done is they have set up an instance or a scenario in their life where they are fire, ready, aim, instead of ready, aim, fire. They've spoken. They've blurted something out. I will, I promise to, I vow, and then only consider the vow after it comes careening out of the mouth. Solomon says, that's a snare. You know what a snare is? It's a trap. trap. It will will catch you up. It's a bad idea. It's not good. Why? Because it makes us out to be a fool. But secondly, we must remember, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that, that God sees our hearts. We are all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's really important. We need to think before we speak. How many relationships would have been dealt a less injurious blow if we had thought first before we spoke? Okay, that principle applies broadly to life. Think before you speak. Warren Weersby notes, people make empty vows because they live in a religious dream world. They think that words are the same as deeds. Their worship is not serious, so their words are not dependable. They enjoy, catch this, he says, they enjoy the good feelings that come about when they make their promises to God, but they do not themselves fulfill their promise. They like to dream about fulfilling their vows, but they never get around to doing it. And so there's something about making this vow, making this promise to the Lord that makes us feel good, spiritually. But we set ourselves up for a snare if we don't make good on our words. While God does not prohibit the making of vows, Solomon does note here again that it's better not to make a vow in the first place than it is to make one and not fulfill it. This is actually one of Solomon's, if you've been tracking along with with some of the language that Solomon repeats, this is one of Solomon's better than statements. It's better, it's better to not make a vow than it is to make one and not fulfill it. Or to make one and delay in fulfilling it. This is one of Solomon's better than statements. This is an encouragement to refrain from playing religious games with God. God doesn't work like a human legal system where there's loopholes and workarounds. We love that, don't we? I mean, we're always trying to find the 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 way around something, the kind of devious, sneaky. Uh, Let me get out of this. There's a clause there, or or the uh, the uh, the legal professionals that wrote that verbiage. They uh, they weren't thinking about this, and so we can can weasel out of something. Well, God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. Moses in Numbers 23 19 writes that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And then we have this question, does he speak and then not act, does he promise and then not fulfill? And it's interesting to note that Moses does not answer that question. Why? Because the answer is emphatically implied. God does not speak and then not act, he doesn't promise and not fulfill. He never has and he never will. God doesn't lie or default on his promises and he expects that we don't either. We don't either. So the first principle that we see here under guard your commitments is do what you say. Do what you say. Have integrity and sincerity. Do what you say. And the second principle here is mean what you say. Mean what you say. Look at verse 6. Solomon says, Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, That was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? The second sin here in these verses is the sin of making a vow and delaying to fulfill it in hopes that we could get out of it later. On, on some technicality. We're probably all aware of the old adage don't write a check with your mouth that you can't cash. That's probably the more cleaned up version of that old adage. But the truth remains don't write a check with your mouth that you cannot cash. People's mouths, my mouth, your mouth, can drag us into sin if we make a vow. And then we're unable to keep it. Or if we don't mean what we say in the first place. We, we say something hoping that the person that we said it to, or even God, as um, foolish is the, as, as it is, that we think that someone might forget. Oh, I told them something, or I told God something, but maybe a little bit of time lapse under the bridge, and they'll forget what I said. And I won't have to fulfill my vow our mouths can drag us into sin friends don't let your mouth make a sinner out of you following through promptly on our commitments is an important part of practical godliness let me rewind that having integrity sincerity in what you have said is an important part of practical godliness jesus told a parable in matthew chapter twenty-one about two sons Uh, He said this, just listen to me here. He said, a man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, the son, answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And then this father went to his second son and said the same. And this son answered, I will go, sir. But yet he did not. And so Jesus asks the question here, which of the two did the will of his father? And those that were in the crowd there replied to Jesus and they said, the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And so it's better to be the first son who said, I won't go into the field, but then later changes his mind, and goes into the field Then to be the second son uh, who says, I will go, and defaults on his promise, who defaults on his word. We can see here that God takes that, again, very seriously. In Solomon's day, uh, a messenger, uh, you, you say there, do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger. Uh, commentators uh, differ on the individual that this messenger may be describing I think that it's likely a prophet or a priest it would be one of those leaders in the temple and so a messenger a prophet or a priest would make rounds to people's houses to collect a promised gift or sacrifice it would be kind of like your elders coming and knocking on your door uh, and saying remember the vow you made remember the promise you made well we need to make good on that now is the time Okay, that's the, the modern-day equivalent here. The person who had written a check with their mouth that they could not cash would say something like this. Well, I'm sorry, messenger. I'm sorry, priest. I'm, I'm sorry, prophet, but I made a mistake. Can you, can you please forget about my vow? Can you, can you erase it off the books? Can, can we just move forward as if those words were never uttered? The word mistake or error in some of your translations is a technical term, and it has the idea of a sin of ignorance. The person who made the vow would be reduced to making some sort of lame excuses as a way to get out of it. Well, well I can't pay my vow because uh, the roof started leaking and, and, and now I don't have the disposable income and or whatever it may be. I can't offer the sacrifice of the, uh, of the unblemished lamb because a coyote came into the pen the other day and wiped them all out. They're, they're, they're reduced to making some sort of excuses. Maybe some of the excuses were legitimate. Oftentimes, they were probably lame. Unfortunately, we all at times try and make excuses for our sin. Right? We all at times Sinfully make excuses for our sin. What Solomon is saying here is don't pretend that you did not know that God requires all the vows to be paid. It's not a sin of ignorance if you open your mouth and stupid things come out. Okay? God doesn't view broken vows lightly. His anger is aroused by dishonesty. Solomon says that God will be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying language to me. That's terrifying. You see, vows, oaths, and swearing all exist because we're untruthful. All of those things exist in the first place because we're untruthful. We say things like this. Honestly, I'm telling the truth. We, we, we need to paraphrase there, right? Or, I'm not going to lie, but fill in the blank. You see, if you just tell a lie, plain and simple, that's bad. But if you actually preface your lie by saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then that's even worse because you've wrapped your untruthfulness in the pretense or the pledge of truthfulness, Vows, oaths, and swearing exist because we're untruthful to begin with. And so we have to say things like, I promise I will. I pledge that I will. I vow that I will. Here's a worthwhile principle. Write this down. When you're speaking to God or speaking to others, simplicity safeguards sincerity. Sincerity. When you're speaking to God or speaking to others simplicity safeguards sincerity. Don't be rash, don't be verbose, don't be hasty, don't be too quick, don't utter things that you're not willing to fulfill, don't let your mouth write checks you can't cash. It would be better that you said nothing at all. Simplicity. Saying less guards sincerity. God loves sincerity. Friends, sincerity should be a hallmark of a true believer. Paul, actually, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, wrote these words. He said, there are people out there who have the appearance of godliness but yet deny its transformative power. Okay? There There are people that want to look sincere but are really insincere. They're just playing the game. They're just going through the motions. They're just jumping through the religious hoops. The person who engages in this type of, quote, godliness stands on dangerous ground because he or she is toying with a holy God. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. And then lastly this morning, let's look at verse 7. Write this down. Guard your reverence. Guard your reverence. Solomon says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. See, verse 7 concludes by coming full circle here. Solomon began by telling us to guard our steps as we approach God. Now he concludes by telling us the answer to the why question. The answer to the why question is because God is to be feared. God is to be feared. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, as Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, then this is one of the wisest verses in Ecclesiastes. Right here in chapter 5, verse 7. This is actually a tough verse to translate and to understand. Uh, Solomon is comparing dreams to a healthy or reverential fear of God. And I must admit to you that these two themes are are kind of like, I have wrestled with this a little bit this week in my study, these two themes are kind of like having two pieces of a puzzle on a table. You're working a puzzle and you got those two pieces and you're convinced that those two pieces go together, but you have to kind of sit there and rotate them and find out, you know, how, how they connect. Well, that's kind of like what these two themes are here, this, this dreams and a healthy reverential fear of God. It's possible that the point of Solomon's comparison is fantasy. What he's trying to put his finger on here is this idea of living in a fantasy land. If you're quick to speak, if if you write checks with your mouth that you can't cash, then you are living in a fantasy land if you think that God is not holy and he does not care about that. Conversely, fear God. Fear God. If you do, then you won't write checks with your mouth that you can't cash. You won't speak rashly. you won't be verbose, you won't approach God carelessly or without due attention, okay? So It's possible here that what Solomon is wanting to put his finger on is this idea of living in a fantasy land versus living in reality. Dreams are out of touch with reality and so argues Solomon are many words in a worship setting. So Solomon encourages his hearers away from a lackadaisical, casual familiarity with God and toward a relationship that is characterized by reverential awe or a healthy fear of God. You know, holiness. Holiness is the characteristic most typical of God in the Old Testament. Not that it's not the characteristic most... uh, true of him today or most typical of him today. But as we read through the Old Testament, it's holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. And we see that the Bible ends with those words, right? With the redeemed, the blood-bought, purchased saints of God from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and the elders, and the created beings, and the cherubim, and and the seraphim, and the angels, all bowing down before him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness is the characteristic that is most typical of God, especially as we read in the Old Testament. Holiness refers to that mystery in the divine being that distinguishes God as God and marks him off as being different than, utterly different than, that which is created. God, speaking about himself in Hosea chapter 11, said this, For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I'm not like you. I don't think like you think, I don't speak like you speak, I don't act like you act. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I am God. I am not a man. I think about Isaiah trembling in the temple as he saw a vision of the Lord in the temple. Woe is me for I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah saw God, it put, him, it put uh, his own heart in perspective. How about the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh? As they died as a result of just looking directly into the Ark of the Covenant, those who were around and saw it and lived replied saying this, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? The people of Israel trembled in Exodus 19 as God revealed himself in a thunderstorm while they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. He's holy. And so what does it mean for us to fear God in light of his holiness? Well, as a believer, to fear God is to stand in awe of him. Let me suggest a wonderful book by the the recently uh, deceased Jerry Bridges, The Joy of Fearing God. Now, That sounds on, on first hearing to be antithetical, but it is not. There is great joy in fearing God. Bridges does a masterful job in that book of, of, uh, of coloring in for us what it looks like and what it means to have a reverential awe, which is how he, uh, how he defines a fear of the Lord, that we would have a reverential awe of God. We would stand in awe at his holiness. To fear God for the believer means not that we quake in oblivion or that we become comatose before him in fear. It's to acknowledge his worth. It's to respond to him with obedience and gratitude. For a believer to fear the Lord is to have a proper response of God's infinite greatness, of his majesty, of his splendor, of his beauty, of his might. And then we respond by bending ourselves humbly before him, bowing humbly before him. As we grow in the knowledge of God as believers, we will learn to truly tremble before his great glory and his burning purity. And I would submit to you that that is the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. When we fear God in this way, we'll come to worship with reverence and awe. We'll come prepared. Not lackadaisical, not carelessly, not thoughtlessly, will come prepared. We'll be ready to listen to what God says because He's holy and His word is holy. We'll be quick to listen and slow to speak. We'll be doers of both what He has said and what we have pledged to do. Why? Because He's worthy. He is holy and He is worthy. John writes, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the answer to verses 1 through 6 is verse 7. If we are growing in a godly fear of God that is produced by His holiness, His otherness, His set-apartness, then we will worship him rightly. Worship him rightly. We'll have a right and healthy fear of him. Now, let me conclude this morning by saying this. If you're here this morning and you have not been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ alone, then you need to know that it is a fearful thing. Some translations say it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a different type of fear altogether. Believers have a filial fear, a a father-son, father-daughter reverential awe relationship with God. The unbeliever quakes and trembles before his justice and his might. The reality that you are, as Jonathan Edwards once said in his famed sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you are but dangling over the chasm by a fraying thread and God will destroy you if you fall in your sin. That's a different kind of fear. It is a dreadful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so like the Apostle Paul, we, I, urge you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Christ's perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection, and receive, receive the unearned gift of salvation. Receive it. Otherwise, you will die in your sin. And that's a different fear of God altogether. Brothers and sisters, we are to guard our steps, we're to guard our words, we're to guard our commitments, and we are to guard our reverence. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your words, such practical teaching here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We pray that as our uh, body has gathered together uh, and worshiped you, that you would have been honored, Lord, that you would challenge us. Help us to think before we speak. Help us to prepare our hearts before we step into your presence. Uh, Lord, we know that there is obviously a sense in which we're always in your presence because as believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit resides in us, that deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. But yet we enter into your presence in times marked off or times set aside for corporate worship. Help us to come prepared. Help us to come thoughtful. Help us to come ready. Ready specifically to hear To hear specifically so that we can obey, so that we offer you the sacrifice of praise that your great name is due and not the sacrifice of fools. God, I pray that you would help us to guard our words, that we would not be rash, quick, hasty. That we would not be verbose, that we wouldn't just utter religious platitudes, just repeating prayers and, and, and lofting up religious words, stringing them together, thinking that that uh, religious shine on our words in some way pleases or honors you. It would be better that we said less if our heart were in the right place. Help us to guard our commitments, Lord, uh, that we would do what we say and that we would mean what we say. Help us not to be people who are looking for the loophole or the technicality in which we can skate by you. Uh, Lord, we want to have high integrity and sincerity because you have high integrity and sincerity. Help us to honor you by mirror, mirroring you in those ways. And then, Father, help us to have a right reverence of you, to come before you as your blood-bought, redeemed, uh, chosen children from before the, the, the creation of the world, chosen Uh, elected, called, justified, redeemed, sanctified, waiting to be glorified, and help us to reverence you well and right. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.